All right, two, type of people, two types of people in the world. There are those who are good at building things, construction th constructing things, putting things together, and then there's those who aren't so good at it. Uh, I'm in that category. I don't build things well. I, I can't, like, put things together. And so oftentimes, if you're in my camp, you order something from a website like Amazon or something, and you prime it so it shows up at your doorstep in two days, and you expect to get what you saw in the picture, like a nicely constructed dresser or cabinet or something like that. But instead, you get the big, you know, cardboard box. Now, at that point, there's a lot of variables. If it's like a really nice one that you paid a lot of money for, chances are the instructions are pretty good. Things work well. But if also, if you're like in my camp, you might have ordered like the cheap thing on Amazon. It's like a dresser for $40 or something. Like a big old genius. Like, so you start to put it together. And the instructions, first off, they don't make sense. And then two, you realize that the parts don't exactly fit nice and neatly, right? So it's like, place F2 and C3. And as you do that, it's like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. And depending upon your personality, then you might go back to the, to the beginning. But if you're like me, you force fit it, right? It's like, you try to make it work the best of your ability. Now, some of you, and it, it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. Some of you are like two hours into something and nothing fits. It doesn't work. And you are more mad than you've ever been in years. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you know exactly. It's like this thing, you're ready just to break it. You're going to lose your mind. Today's passage is like that. In that, it has lots of parts and pieces and there's some instructions, but oftentimes where you want to stick this part into this part, it doesn't fit. And so there's a temptation to force fit it. What you have to do is just take the time and go, okay, that, that doesn't fit. Don't just shove it in there. Pull back. Try and figure this out. And hopefully by the end of this, all the pieces will kind of go together, and you'll see that there's actually a purpose for this passage. Now, some of you might be familiar with the name Martin Luther. He was a reformer, been dead for a few hundred years. If you don't know much about him, he was a confident biblical interpreter or an exegete. Or another way of saying that is like he was very arrogant in his opinions, or at least the way he communicated them. It was a part of the style of the day. So it would be like, I conclude this to be the case. And for those foolish enough to disagree with me, may the fires of hell consume their ignorance type of thing. That's how he talked. Okay? This is what Martin Luther had to say about our passage today. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So it's weird today. Uh, if, if, you're, if this is your first time here, just it's like, it's a weird Sunday. Uh, and if you're exploring Christianity, just digging into this, this is one of those passages in the Bible that's, that's bizarre. And the Bible has bizarre passages. To pretend otherwise is not being honest. You are a modern Western person and you're picking up an ancient document, and there are ways of communicating in this literature that are foreign to us, and so stuff appears bizarre, and this is, this is what it's going to be like today. So that said, let's dig in. We're in the book of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle, a leader in the early church, is writing to first century Christians who are facing persecution, and he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, 
eight persons were brought safely through the water. All right, so first part, not that bad. Last part, not that bad. It's the part in the middle. This whole, Jesus died, and then he goes in the spirit and preaches to spirits in prison. And by the way, the spirits who were there were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah. So you got to ask yourself, like, what is Jesus doing? Who are these spirits? Why are they there? What's the prison? What's going on? And then once you solve all of that, why is Peter bringing this up? What does this have to do with Christians who are facing persecution? Why is this important? Now, in this passage, because it's, it's obscure, there's, there's many different views and understanding of what's taking place when it says, Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah. It's different views. There are three major categories that sort of encapsulate many of the different variations of the views, and I'd like to outline just the three briefly for you. First view says that this passage is talking about at some point around the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus goes into the place of the dead, the prison, and there he preaches the gospel to all the people who had never heard the gospel before. Or the variation of it is he preaches the gospel to the Old Testament faithful who never heard the name of Jesus. So you think about all the Old Testament people who followed the they went to temple, they made their sacrifices, they read Torah, they obeyed the Sabbath, but they never heard Jesus. And so he goes and preaches to them the gospel message. And again, the other variation of that is he preaches to all the people who had never heard the gospel and gives them a chance. That's one, one view that some people hold. A second view says that this is talking about Christ in the Spirit inspiring and being alongside of Noah right before the flood. And so Christ, through Noah, preaches to the rebellious generation right before the flood goes and wipes them out. And the spirits who were formerly disobedient and who are now in prison are the people who were punished who did not listen to the message of Noah. So first view, Christ goes down, says to the people, this is the gospel message. And maybe it's just to Old Testament faithful, or maybe it's to everyone who's, who hasn't heard the gospel. Second view says it is Christ in the Spirit preaching through Noah to the unrepentant generation right before the flood takes him out. So third view, and this is the third view that, that is sort of what I hold to, and it's the most weird. It's crazy and it's bizarre, but if you do the work, it makes sense and it makes sense of the passage, it makes sense in the book of 1 Peter, and it actually has the ability to give you incredible encouragement. In order to understand this view, though, you have to take some back steps, back, back step a bit, and understand three things. Typology, bias, and origin stories, and how they operate. First, typology. Typology is a person, event, or institution that foreshadows something else. A person, event, or institution that is pointing to something else. It often mirrors it. It looks and sounds and walks just like something that is yet to come. So the definition may be confusing, but some examples will make it make sense. Story of Jonah. What happens to Jonah? Big whale. It's a trick question because it's just as a fish. All the like cool Bible kids are like, it doesn't say whale, Dad. It says fish. It's a big fish. So you could picture like a big lingcod, whatever you want. It's a big fish that swallows Jonah for how long? It's in the belly of the beast. 
in the darkness, and then he comes out. And so that is functioning typologically. It's a type of Christ. Jesus is in the belly of the beast, the belly of the well, in the darkness, and then he comes out to the light. Or think about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is ultimately pointing to the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus. Or the story of Abraham and Isaac. There's Abraham, a sacrifice, and Isaac. Father, son, sacrifice. What happens in the life of Jesus? Jesus is the son, there's the father, and there's a sacrifice. Think about the institution of the temple. The temple in the Old Testament is the God-ordained place where God's presence will be revealed. This is specifically the place God dwells with his people. In the New Testament, in the book of John, John says that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is now the place where God dwells with his people. So all of those things are types. It's typology. And so it's Typology is something that the biblical authors use all the time. So you need to know it, you need to recognize it, and you need to be able to see and identify it. Second thing we got to talk about is our bias. Every single person in this room has a bias against the supernatural and the spiritual realm. We have all been brought up, as long as you've been brought up in Western culture, you've been brought up in a culture that is saturated in materialism. What I, what I mean by materialism is not just like that we're greedy and we want to buy a bunch of stuff. Although that certainly is true. We've been saturated in that type of materialism, right? I'm talking about philosophical materialism. Philosophical materialism says that the material world, the physical world, that is all that exists. Even if there is some type of spiritual reality, we can't know, we don't know anything about it, we can't access it, so you live in such a way as if the material world is all that exists. That which you could touch, you can see, you can taste, you can measure it, quantify it, qualify it, put it in a test tube and measure it. The physical world is all that exists. And you've been saturated since the day you were born in a culture that says that. So even if you're a Christian, you go, that's not true, Isaac, I'm a Christian. Doesn't matter. You were raised since birth in that type of culture, and it affects the way you think, and it affects the way you read your Bible. I'll give you an example. Let's say you have a second cousin, a second or a third cousin, okay? And there's a big family reunion, and your second or third cousin comes up to you and says, dude, I saw a ghost last night. Your response is gonna be, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. No, no. It's like, I, I, I talked to the ghost. And you're like, no, that doesn't, come on, man. It's a crazy second, third cousin. You don't even have, we don't even count third cousins. Who are you? We don't count third, cous third cousins in my culture. <laughs> if you're in a different place, time and culture, though, let's say it's a second. Let's, I, don't even, I, I honestly don't even know what a third cousin is. But let's say it's a second or third cousin. In a different culture, second or third cousin says, hey, I got to talk to you. I saw a ghost. You might say, tell me more about it. Why? Because even if they're a fourth cousin in some culture, that's family and that's blood. And you trust your blood. And if they saw a ghost, you'd go, that's weird because, oh, my mom told me about all the ghosts she saw too. And so in that culture, you might be inclined to believe a family member and be open to some weird spooky spiritual stuff where in our culture it's like, yeah, right. Now, I am not saying what's right or wrong. I have made no truth claim on ghosts, whether they exist, whether or not third cousins exist, whether that we should count that far. I've made no claim on any of that stuff. 
all I am saying is that you, as a Western modern person, have a bias against the supernatural and the spiritual realm. It affects the way you think and it affects the way you read your Bible. Three, origins, specifically origin stories. The first chapters of the Bible, particularly Genesis 1 through 11, they set up the structure for the rest of the story. They're the origin story. They're the stories that give shape to the worldview in which the rest of the Bible will be interpreted through. We know this intuitively when we watch movies. So if you go and watch a Marvel movie, Marvel movie, and at the beginning of the movie, there's like a voice that says, long ago the infinity stones were forged and separated because they could not be united for if they were united they would be too powerful in the hands of one person you know at that point whatever else takes place in that movie it's about the infinity stones and not letting a bad guy get a hold of them okay whatever little fights whatever comic relief humor whatever fights thor and hulk get into That's not the ultimate point. The point is stopping the bad guy from getting these infinity stones. The origin, the beginning of the story, gives the structure in which the rest of the story is going to flow. And in the Bible, that's the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1 through 11, and then really 1 through uh, 3 through 4. It's like just, it's how you see it. This is an example of that that we use. I forget if it was from our David, I think it might have been from our Isaiah series and our David series. But Genesis will give design templates. It'll give you themes. And then these themes and design templates will play out through the rest of the Bible. So here's an example, an easy one to identify. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What's the theme? God says something is bad. It's forbidden. Don't touch. Human beings see it. Despite what God says, we say, no, not forbidden. We say it's good, and then we take it. Now, in Hebrew, this can be a little bit more clear because the design patterns are more evident. So in Genesis 3, 6, Eve, the woman, she sees it. She ra'ahs it. Ra'ah, see. And then she sees that it's good. Hebrew word here for good is tov. She ra'ahs and then sees that it's tov, good. And then she lachaz it. She takes it. So you see, you know it's forbidden, you declare it's tov, good, and then you lachah, you take it. This is a design template, a pattern that goes throughout the Bible. So here's a story from the life of David, particularly the story of David and Bathsheba. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, this not, is, this, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So, what do you have in the life of David? He sees Bathsheba, and then an important note. He inquires of her, and what do they tell him? She's married. 
which means what? Forbidden, off limits, bad, do not touch, not good. But he sees her and he declares her what? The text says beautiful, but the design template is still there because the Hebrew word for beautiful is not the Hebrew word for beautiful, it is tov. David sees ra'az, that which is forbidden, and sees that it's tov, good, and then laka takes her. These design templates run all throughout scriptures, and there are other examples of this. But you have to let Genesis give you the template. Another thing about the origin stories and how they set up the structure and plot. After Adam and Eve sin, God tells the serpent who initiated the temptation and the woman something. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring, offspring Hebrew word here is zerah, means literally seed, seed, children, offspring. I will put this strife between you and between the serpent's seed, the serpent zerah, and the woman's offspring, the woman zerah, there's going to be a war. And ultimately, the seed of the woman is going to strike at the head of the serpent, and the serpent's seed will strike at the heel of the woman's seed. Now, this is the beginning. This is setting up the story. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? There's team serpent, bad guys. The seed of the serpent, you don't want to be, those are bad guys. Don't, they're like Thanos, trying to get them stones. Then there's this woman's seed who's ultimately, as you read more and more, it's going to develop that there's going to be some type of Messiah figure who's going to wage war against the seed of the serpent. And so those images are implanted in your mind at the very, very beginning of the story. So you're wondering, okay, who's good guys, who's bad guys? And then you have these design templates cluing you in into a bunch of stuff. All right, now. You apply these things to another passage. Remember how I said today's passage is like one of the most weird, bizarre passages in the Bible? In order to understand that passage, you have to go to an even more weird and bizarre passage in the Bible. And we might at this point be at the most weird, bizarre passage in the entirety of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, which is a part of the origin story. It's the part that gives the, the plot structure. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And by the way, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. <coughs> Told you, man, this is weird. And there's a lot of stuff going on. You should be asking a bunch of questions. Who are the sons of God? Who are they? And who, what did they do with the daughters of men? What's going on there? So, Briefly, the phrase sons of God, Beni Elohim in Hebrew, is used not only in the Bible, but more specifically the literature of the day to mean spiritual being. Spiritual being. Now, that doesn't mean good spiritual being, bad spiritual being. It's like ambiguous. Sometimes maybe it could refer to angels, sometimes maybe it could refer to demons. The text isn't clear. The phrase sons of God just means spiritual 
being. So then you're asking the question, well, were they good ones? Were they bad ones? What does it mean that they had sex with women? Can angels do that? Can demons? Can spiritual beings do that? Or is it saying something like the, the, the spiritual beings, the demons, possessed human bodies and then they went and married women? Or is it saying, because sometimes the sons of God in, in the ancient Near Eastern literature means rulers, like the earthly rulers. So does it mean like the, the, the earthly ruler, ruler had some type of demonic power behind him while they were doing stuff that ultimately they took women for themselves, probably forced marriage or something like that. And there's all these, these questions. Now here's one of the biggest problems. When we approach the book of Genesis, we often ask questions of the text that it's not trying to answer because we're modern people. So most of our questions have to deal with like modern science. Like what, what you know, what does this, this modern scientific discovery, how does that relate to Genesis 115 where it talks about this? And those modern scientific questions are fine and you can have those discussions. But I'm telling you, Genesis is not trying to answer those questions. It's got a different set of questions it's trying to answer. And there's multiple reasons for that. But one is, whatever modern science believes now, it didn't believe it 50 years ago. Some stuff it continues. But in 100 years, many of the stuff we believe today isn't going to be believed then. And so Genesis is not trying to answer the scientific questions of every single age, of every single decade. It's trying to do something much bigger than that. It's trying to do something that's, that's greater than just answering specific time questions. And it lets you know when it's trying to do that. So I'll give you, I'll show you another design template. And some of you who are like the straight-A students or homeschool kids, you already, were, you already saw something in this. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but I could tell because it's like you're in class and you're wanting to raise your hand to let the teacher know you know, what, you know where this is going. Let's zoom in on this thing about the sons of God, the spiritual beings. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the spiritual beings saw that the daughters of man were tov. And they took as their wives any they chose. So what's going on? Genesis 6 is mirroring, mirroring Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, you have human rebellion. Human beings see Ra'ah with their eyes, and they declare that which is forbidden to be good, and they take it. In Genesis 6, you have the spiritual beings doing the same activity. They see that which is forbidden, and they see that it is tov, good, and they take it. And what's produced? Zera, offspring, seed. Now, all sorts of questions then, then start coming up too. It's like, well, who are the children? Where are they? What are they like? Are they like half demon people? It's like, those are fun discussions to have. Very fun, in fact. We could talk about that stuff for hours. But what's most important is that we're in the origin story section. We're in the part that develops the plot structure. And you have human beings rebelling, 
spiritual beings rebelling in a similar manner, and then both human rebellion and spiritual rebellion come together in what? The most intimate of possible ways and produce seeds who are on which team? Team serpent. These are bad guys. And so there is a mirror, human rebellion, spiritual rebellion. Both sides are declaring what's right and then taking things that God has told them not to. And then what happens after that? Well, then God gets really upset because like the humans rebel, the spiritual beings rebel, flood. Flood. Just destruction. And then only eight people are saved through that. Okay. If it's not weird enough, we got to go even weirder. Because there's a book that's not in the Bible called the Book of Enoch, but it's referenced by the Bible, and it is a widely circulated and well-read document of the ancient world, specifically at the time First Peter was being written. So the Book of Enoch's not the Word of God, it's not the Bible, but it's a, it's a book that has a lot of people reading it, a lot of people talking about it, and many people might even assume that there's truth in it. But even if they didn't think it was true, they really liked the content of it. And we know that actually this book, the stories would have been popular in the region that Peter was writing in. Even if they, even if they hadn't read the book, they would have been familiar with some of its content. So it's like, go back, to, I don't know how long ago, it's 15 years now, it's going to make everyone feel old, 15, 20 years. Like if, if you were around at this time in evangelical Christian culture, one of two Christians had read a book series. You guys know what I'm talking about? Left Behind. You didn't have to think about it. If you were in evangelical culture at that time, 10, 15, 20 years ago, however long it was, like, even if you never read it, your friend talked about it type of thing. Okay? Book of Enoch, the folklore and legends of it are popular, even if you didn't read it. The book of Enoch describes what happens to the spiritual beings who are destroyed in the flood. And in that, it says because they disobeyed God, God bound them in chains in prison. And so the way the story goes is that there's this guy named Enoch that the spirits who are in prison talk to. And they say, Enoch, dude, you're a good dude. God likes you. He likes you. Go ask God if he can let us go now. Like, we've been down here a long time in this prison. We've learned our lesson. Realized that whole, you know, taking up wives is not a good thing. Go, go tell God to let us go. In Enoch, the, the spirits are called the Watchers. Now, Enoch is a fictional character in the book of Enoch, but he's based upon a historical figure. In the book of Genesis, there is an Enoch. At the same time period, all of this is going on, and he's the seventh generation in a genealogy, which is a Jewish way of saying, like, he's a righteous dude. And then it says he walked with a God, and then it says God took him up. So if you have a guy who's the seventh generation, he's like the perfect generation, and he walks with God and he gets taken up, what does that sound like? He doesn't die, he gets taken up. He's a type of Christ. This is a typological figure. Enoch is like Jesus. He walks with God. He doesn't die, he ascends, he's taken up. So they talk to this Enoch guy in the story. 
God likes you, Enoch. Go ask him if we can be free now. Enoch goes. He talks with God in the story. And God says, no, my verdict still stands. Enoch then descends and tells the watchers, the spirits in prison, God's verdict still stands. You're still locked up. Okay. Back to 1 Peter. Like, when are we getting back to 1 Peter? Here it is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So what is Peter doing? He's taking biblical truth and stories that everyone knows and believes to illustrate something. In the same way that Enoch descended to tell the prisoners God verdict still stands, Jesus, at, around the time of his death and resurrection, descends and tells the, prison, the, prisoner, the prisoners God's verdict still stands. But it's not just that, there's, there's more. Because the question you should be asking, why in the world does Jesus need to go to talk to these spirits in prison and tell them some, some truth like God's verdict still stands? And this has to do with how we picture the crucifixion. When we picture the crucifixion, oftentimes we get the first part right. All the earthly rulers and the human beings that are there, they're cursing Jesus, mocking Jesus. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's suffering. And as he's gasping for air, the human rulers are saying things like, well, if you were the son of God, you could come down from that cross. And it's this idea that as Jesus is suffering, they're rubbing it in his face. You are abandoned. You are forsaken. If you are the Messiah, then you wouldn't be dying on a cross. And what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like there's this feeling of abandonment and all the people are mocking and just causing not only the excruciating pain physically, but emotionally. This man is rejected by God. He is rejected by his people. His own followers aren't even here. But it doesn't end there. In addition to the humans that are doing that, there is also something spiritually taking place. See, in the demonic realm, or the, the demonic beings, they think, much like the humans, that this is accomplishing the defeat of Jesus. They're rejoicing in finding satisfaction in the suffering of the Messiah. They're mocking him. They're laughing, rejoicing in the suffering of Messiah. Oftentimes we think that like, oh, Satan knows the plans of God and, and, you know, as Jesus is going to the cross, Satan is somewhere going, oh, no, don't crucify him because then I will be defeated. No, no. Had the demonic powers, rulers, and principalities knew what God was intending to do, they would not have crucified Jesus. If they knew what was going to happen, they wouldn't. It's like suicide. The last thing they would want to do is keep Jesus They'd want to do the opposite of what they did. Now, this isn't just speculation. Paul says this. Paul says if the demons knew what they were doing, they would not have crucified Jesus. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the rulers of this age knew it, they wouldn't have crucified him. Now, remember our supernatural bias. When we've read this passage, and not just us, I'm talking about scholars even, we interpret rulers of this age to be what? The Roman rulers, the earthly rulers who are in charge. It is extremely rare, extremely rare in the Bible and in the Jewish literature of the day to refer to those type of rulers as rulers of the age. The powers, the principalities, the ruler of the present age is Satan and his demons. Ephesians, who is the ruler of the age in, in Ephesians? The prince of the power of the air. It's Satan. The rulers, the principalities, the powers is the demonic. And the few times it's referred to as earthly rulers, there's a strong case to be made that the earthly ruler is, is like the earthly or physical manifestation of embodiment of the spiritual reality behind it. So had the ruler's powers and principalities knew what was being done at the cross, they wouldn't have done it. Now, you need to picture that crucifixion scene. The earthly rulers are mocking Jesus. He's suffering. He's gasping for air. He, he's feeling the abandonment. My God, why have you forsaken me? And then the legions of, of the demonic are rejoicing, celebrating. The spirits who are locked away in prison it's our time. The defeat of Messiah, we will be released. It's, it's the unleashing of hell. Now, there's a children's movie that actually illustrates this well. Children's movie. It's sort of a cheesy, um, I don't like it very much. Some of you might like it, so you could take offense to that, and you can talk to campus Pastor Greg after service about it. Um, the books are good. It's the Chronicles of Narnia series. The first movie is Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Great book. Movie? Not so good, but it's a cheesy kids movie, okay? But in it, there's a scene that should be rated R. I'm serious. And it's not because it's inappropriate or shows cursing or nudity. It's just so satanically scary. Like you're in the theater and your kids are like, oh, Lucy, Mr. Tumnus. And like, oh, good Lord, you get scared by it. It's the part where Aslan, who is a type of Christ is going to be killed by the white witch who is a type of Satan and she's going to kill him upon an altar but as he goes Aslan lays down his life willingly and all her like evil demonic goblin monster creatures are rejoicing and celebrating this scene captures the crucifixion scene perfectly I want to show it to you you can kind of get a glimpse of what's going on in here
Now, it, it was hard to hear, but she says, tomorrow we take Narnia. And then she turns to Aslan, and a very evil voice says, in that knowledge, despair. Okay, when Jesus is on the cross, the humans, if you're God's son, you could come down. The spiritual reality. God has abandoned you. You are forsaken. He's gasping for air, just holding on as people mock him. And oftentimes we go, okay, Jesus is the son of God, so he knows, he knows how it's all going to turn out. So, How does Jesus pray before he goes to the cross? If there's any other way, Father, make it be so. I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours. So Jesus trusts the Father all the way till his dying breath nailed to a cross as wickedness rejoices in his suffering. And it's just like all those little evil creatures they're rejoicing. And so Jesus, you die in despair. God has abandoned you. Your people have abandoned you. Your followers have abandoned you. No one cares. No one's here. You die alone on a cross. Why is that important to the passage? As the demonic world is rejoicing and celebrating, this passage tells us something, and it's about vindication. The message was, the Messiah, Jesus, is abandoned and forsaken by God, his people, his family, his followers. But the resurrection occurs. It's God's way of giving Jesus vindication. The Father is faithful to raise the Son. And what does the Son do? 
he goes to announce his victory to the spirits who have thought they were victorious. He proclaims his victory. He is vindicated by the Father through the resurrection. Now then you ask the next question. Why is that important for First Peter to tell these Christians? Because they are persecuted Christians. They have lost family members over their decisions to follow Jesus. They have economic hardship. And in a few years from the composition of 1 Peter, some of them will be tortured and killed for the gospel. What happens when they throw you away and you're in solitary confinement for two years and they say, if your God is so good and he's real and he loves you, why are you still here? What about when they march you out to the flames and they say, if God is so good, let him save you from the fire. The Christians, abandoned by friends and family, and maybe in those intense moments of persecutions, feel abandoned by God himself. So what does Peter want them to know? Even if they nail you to a cross and you die alone, the Father has not forsaken you. He will give you vindication in this life or at the resurrection. No matter whatever the situation is, God does not leave nor forsake he promises and gives vindication. And Jesus is the first example of that. Remember how the passage started? He suffered for the unrighteous. He's the innocent one suffering. We can't handle that. You notice how you can't handle it when the innocent one suffers? Think about all the movies you love. You love them because you hate them. Think like movies like Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, 12 Years a Slave. These are good movies. You like them, but you, you should hate them. It's the story of injustice that gets deep in our bones, in our soul. We cannot bear the innocent one suffering. Peter goes, remember Jesus, the ultimate one, the ultimate Enoch, the one who walks with God perfectly. He is crucified, the most horrific of deaths, abandoned, so much to the point he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even if you're nailed to a cross, don't you forget the Father will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's precisely what those Christians needed to hear. They needed to know if their family rejects them, if their friends reject them, if they lose a job, and even if they go to the fire, God will bring vindication. Kind of Peter wraps this little section up in the following verses, but before we get into what's going on next week, he talks about baptism. This is his last section it just says, baptism, which corresponds to this, that's typology, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to them, to him. Who are the powers? Or the powers and principalities. Jesus has subjected all of the spiritual beings. Good, bad, heaven, hell, it doesn't matter. All spiritual beings are brought into, put in subject before him. And then he ties that idea into baptism. Why? This is one of the things we get wrong about baptism. Baptism is spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Oftentimes we say things, and this is true, but it's not complete. Baptism is an outward sign of something that took place inwardly. It's an outward symbol of that which took place on the inside. And that's true, fine, and well. But baptism is your public declaration of whose team you are on. Satan doesn't care 
if you invited Jesus into your heart and you keep him there and you don't do anything about it. It's when you declare publicly that you are on Team Messiah and not Team Serpent that it matters. If you go to other places in the world, they don't care if you accepted Jesus into your heart. When you go down to the river and your community and forsake the faith of your parents and get baptized, that's when they come after you. It is the public declaration of whose team you are on. It is spiritual warfare. And when you get baptized, you are participating in the death and resurrection, the death and vindication of Jesus, the death and victory of Jesus over the demonic. It's spiritual warfare. Now for us today, Peter was like those parts. Remember, there's like 10 moving parts and you try to force fit them. What is Peter doing? He's using all these images and thoughts and Enoch and Genesis 6 and um, folklore. That, and, he, and he's trying to tell us Jesus, although he was shamed and suffered, proclaimed his victory even to the spirits in prison. God brings vindication. Therefore, trust your heavenly Father and his goodness no matter how bad this life gets. So for us today, what does this weird passage have to teach us? Do you walk with that type of trust? Do you trust God like that? Do you trust the goodness of your heavenly Father like that? Because, I mean, let's, let's be real. There's enough hurt, pain in this room. Some of us don't feel that God is good. Some of us don't feel like God could love us. Some of us have too much shame. Some of us think that God doesn't really think about us. We have all kinds of thoughts. And what Peter wants you to know is that even if you were to find yourself on a cross abandoned by all, God has not forsaken you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so you walk in this world differently. You walk with a confidence. The Father will not abandon you. And so do you walk like that? Do you trust him like that? Do you live like that? The ushers are going to pass forward communion. Now, as we enter into communion, I want us to reflect on God's goodness, his faithfulness, and how he vindicates. And in doing so, ask him to, to change our view of our relationship with him, our view of the Father, our view of ourselves, in order that we might live faithfully now. I want to give you an example of how Jesus did this. Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And oftentimes in Christian circles, um, there's a thought that that's because that's where God actually abandoned Jesus, that the Father abandoned Jesus. We've all heard stuff like that. Sometimes it's even in our worship songs. Um, and I'd like to say, I don't think that's the case. The Father doesn't abandon Jesus at the cross. One, I think theologically, you'd have a hard time proving that there was a breaking up of the Trinity in such a way that there was a complete abandonment of the Son. But two, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Psalm 22. It's the first line of Psalm 22. And the names of the Psalms were the first line of the psalm. So what's the name of Psalm 22? It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he quotes the first line as well as the name of Psalm 22. But Psalm 22 also goes on to describe the death of a victim. 
And in his, in his death and dying, it, it, it feels as if he's been forsaken by God. But it's creepy, the description. Because the psalm was written roughly 1,000 years before Jesus, roughly 500 years before the, the area that Rome was in started perfecting the form of crucifixion. But in the psalm, it describes exactly what occurs to Jesus. Here's just a portion of it. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Picture the Narnia scene. They're encircled around Jesus. They're mocking. He's pierced. He can count his bones. They, they strip him naked to shame him and divide his garments. So Jesus quotes this psalm. But Jesus also knows how the psalm ends. The psalm does not end in despair or the father forsaking the victim. The psalm ends with the victim, Jesus, prophetically on the cross, declaring that he will proclaim the goodness of God to his brothers and to his people and to their children's children. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you Zerah, offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, posterity, word for posterity. What does posterity mean? Like you're, you're, Guess the word, Zerah. The seed of Messiah shall serve him. It shall be told to, of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And so when Jesus goes down to the prisoners, the spirits in prison, I like to think that that's what he says, that he has done it. I've done it. Had you known what God had prepared before the foundations of the world, you would not have done it. But in the suffering of the Messiah, salvation to humanity would come. And so friends, as we are about to take communion and close with a song, do you walk with the trust? You walk with an understanding that you can trust the goodness of your heavenly father. He doesn't promise an easy life. That's why it's so difficult. We all have got scars, hurts, and pains. But even if you were to find yourself alone and abandoned on a cross, it is precisely there at that moment. God has not abandoned you. And he promises you vindication. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed... He takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance. Likewise, he takes the cup, says, this is my blood. You drink it and you swear to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. The cup and baptism are very similar. They're a loyalty oath. They're a pledging of allegiance. They're saying, I'm on Messiah's team. I'm in Messiah's family, not a child of the serpent. And I declare that publicly, openly, and we promise to do it, Lord, until you return.